Missiologist David Seals, in his wonderful book, Reaching and Teaching, writes about the church in China. And I quote him, he says, All is not as well as we might hope. China's church is hurting in many ways because of the dearth of theologically trained leaders. Missionaries report that evangelicals in China are losing 10,000 house churches every year to cults because their church leaders have no theological training. They cannot teach or defend what Orthodox Christianity holds to be true. End of quote. Another missionary in China reveals that 80% of the house church pastors are women. Missionaries report similar concerns, not only from Asia, but also in Africa and Latin America. Missionary John Stamm writes, and I quote, Big sectors of the Latin American church seem to stagger from one shallow sensational fad to another. For a while it was name it, claim it, or holy laughter and spiritual warfare. Then there was the health and wealth and the theology of prosperity. Knocking people to the floor is very popular, as is the latest novelty of naming apostles, end quote. These are simply symptoms of a greater disease. The churches have largely departed from the use of the Bible as its only rule of faith and practice. I received an invitation about a year and a half ago from a large denomination of churches to speak at their youth conference. And after the pastor extended the invitation to me, he said, by the way, I'm inviting you specifically to preach the Bible. He said, we no longer teach the Bible in our churches. We no longer teach the Bible in our churches. And folks in the southern church, Latin America, Africa, Asia, this is all too common. The gospel entered Nigeria 200 years ago. Nigeria today has some 8,500 churches and 4,000 pastors, yet animism, animism, that is the belief that souls exist not only in human beings, but also in all other, in plants, rocks, mountains, rivers, and shadows. Animism still reigns in the hearts of most Nigerian believers. One missionary to Nigeria says of the church in Nigeria that many are so far from the truth that the truth is very hard to find, end quote. The reason that this tragedy is occurring is because all over the past number of decades, many missionaries and many missionary agencies, many churches have omitted from the Great Commission the command to make disciples. They have wrongly interpreted the Great Commission as an evangelistic mandate rather than a discipleship mandate. Disciples are made by teaching Christians to obey all of the commandments of Scripture. And this is the great omission of the great commission. Making disciples through teaching them the Scriptures, the whole counsel of God. That takes a long time takes a lot of work. So let's re-examine briefly the meaning of the Great Commission. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, and I'll read for us verses 16 through 20. We will zero in on verses 19 and 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are often inclined to see a number of commands in verses 19 and 20. But the fact is, is that this commission, what we often call the Great Commission, as presented here, contains really one central command, and then a number of participles around it that fill in additional information about that one single command. The single imperative or command of the commission is found in these words, make disciples of all nations. The disciples of Jesus are supposed to do what he did, and that is make disciples. Make disciples. Surrounding this single imperative are a number of participles that provide us with insight into the circumstances in which disciple-making is to take place, and also tell us some of the characteristics of disciple-making. First of all, let's look at the circumstances of making disciples. The first participle there in verse 19 is translated by the simple word, go, go. And it modifies the command to make disciples by detailing the circumstances in which the church is to make disciples. The idea is that disciple making is to take place as the church is going. When you look at a more detailed study of the grammar here, Really, there are two important truths that we need to note. First of all, it speaks of the church making disciples as a part of its normal daily ministry activities. Just as the normal church is going about its daily ministry and activities, it is to be involved in making disciples. But the second thing that we need to notice about this is the kind of participle used here indicates that it has some imperative force. In other words, the going is not just an incidental matter as if Jesus were saying, you know, whenever you go on a trip, by the way, try to make a few disciples. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, the Lord was clearly directing his disciples to go somewhere as an action that had to take place prior to fulfilling the main command of making disciples. That Christ's followers are commanded to make disciples of all the nations certainly means that they would have to go to those nations. So there is to be an intentionality about this going to all of the nations. Well, in second place here, let's look at some of the characteristics of disciple making. There are two more participles here in our text that reveal the characteristics or the mark of making disciples. The first characteristic of disciple making is that disciples are baptized, it says. Disciples are baptized. In baptism, the disciple identifies himself with the Lord and he yields himself to the authority of his teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second characteristic of disciple making is that the disciple is instructed in the truths and teachings of the master. It says teaching them to observe, that is to obey, 
all that I have commanded you. Now, notice after we've seen the circumstances and the characteristics of disciple making, notice the assurance that Jesus gives them while they are out making disciples. He says in verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'd like you to notice three things about this assurance that Jesus gave them. First of all, it is the assurance of the divine presence, of the divine presence. He said, I am with you. What is significant about Christ's presence as we go to the nations to make disciples? Well, first of all, it's anchored in the statement found earlier in verse 18. Go back up to verse 18, where it said, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father, following the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, bestows to him all authority in heaven and on earth. And among other things, that means that the Lord Jesus Christ has all authority over all of the souls of all men. So this assurance is Christ's divine presence. I am with you. But notice, secondly, it is a continual presence. Always, always. The word translated always is a unique word that quite literally means the whole of every day. The whole of every day. John Broadus, in his commentary on Matthew, says about the word, he says, always includes days of strength and of weakness, days of success and of failure, days of joy and of sorrow, of youth and of age, days of life and day of death. It includes all the days of our lives. So this presence is not only a divine presence, but is it, a, it is a continual presence. But in the third place, notice that it is an enduring presence. He says, even to the end of the age. This points, of course, toward the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will never leave his church throughout this entire age. He will always be with us, with his church, even to the end of the age, as we go to all of the nations and make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we've already noticed, the central focus of this command is to make disciples. It is to make disciples. Any meaningful attempt to obey this commission must come to grips with what it means to make disciples. The task that Jesus has given to his church is not simply announcing the good news of Jesus Christ, but rather it is making disciples for Jesus Christ. Of course, we cannot make disciples for Jesus Christ without first announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's clear from Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. But announcing the good news of Jesus Christ is where this commission starts. It's not where it stops. It is not the total sum of this great commission. Jesus' command demands more than simply pulling into a village in some country of the world, getting out of, the, of your Jeep and preaching John 3.16 through an interpreter and then driving away. That's not fulfilling the Great Commission. Fulfilling the Great Commission is a command to make disciples. And as I've already said, that takes a long time. That takes a long time. I believe that we need to resharpen our focus on the essence of the Great Commission by considering two important questions, two important questions. First of all, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
And secondly, how are disciples of Jesus Christ made? Well, let's back up and look at this first question. First of all, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? The word translated as make disciples means to cause someone to become a disciple or follower. To cause someone to become a disciple or follower. It does not mean to force them to become a disciple. It does not mean to compel them to become a disciple, but rather it means to exhort them to become a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ. Let me quote John Broadus again. He says that to make disciples means to bring them into the relationship of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authority, authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them, end quote. In a perhaps a more simplified way, we could say that to make disciples means to make someone into a learner or a follower, an obeyer of Jesus Christ. That means that the Great Commission involves much more than what we normally call evangelism. The Great Commission is not an evangelistic mandate, but rather it is a discipleship mandate in which the constant, systematic, and faithful teaching of the whole counsel of the Word of God is central to its very core. The Great Commission, properly obeyed, produces disciples, not just decisions. It is true that becoming Christ's disciple occurs at a decisive point in time, and it involves repentance for the forgiveness of sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the sad evidences of a defective and unbiblical mission strategy has been the tendency to be satisfied with evangelistic decisions that yield no lasting fruit or transformation in the lives of those who have supposedly made a decision for Jesus Christ. The work of missions is to produce more than decisions. It is intended to produce disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like you to turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 8. Just to, just to look at this a little bit more. <clears throat> John chapter 8. Drop down to verse 31. John 8, 31 says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. So Jesus was here talking to a number of Jews that the scripture says had believed him. or They believed in what he said. And so we would get the idea that they were in fact true, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. He is talking to those who had believed him. And he says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. According to Jesus, a genuine disciple is one who continues in his word. And being a disciple means that you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The freedom that Christ offers is the freedom of salvation. It is freedom from the slavery to sin. It is freedom to be God's children. Verses 35 and 36 of John 8 make that very clear. But I want you to notice what's going on here, please. Go back to verse 31, because it says that Jesus is talking to a a group of Jews that had believed him. 
But if you drop down to verse 37, Jesus says of these same people that they were seeking to what? To kill him. They were seeking to kill him. How could these Jews be described as both believing Jesus and yet as seeking to kill him? Well, it was because their faith wasn't genuine. They were not true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ lays down here exactly what it is that separates a spurious faith from true faith. What it is that distinguishes fickle disciples from genuine disciples. And that distinctive marker, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, then he says, you are truly my disciples. D.A. Carson commenting on this verse says, and I quote, perseverance is the mark of true faith. Perseverance is the mark of real disciples, he says. A genuine believer remains in Jesus' word, that is his teaching. In other words, such a person obeys it. Such a person seeks to understand it better, to find it more precious, to find it more controlling, precisely when others flatly oppose it and refuse it, end quote. So Jesus knew that all who claimed to follow him, all who claimed to be his disciples, were not indeed his true disciples. He says in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does what? The will of my Father. There are some significant implications of this for missions. Our current approach to missions too often concentrates only on the initial aspect of coming to Christ. We've too often been preoccupied with short-term results, that is, decisions, rather than life transformation, that is, disciples. And the net result of this shift away from the biblical strategy is that much of professing Christianity, both in the United States and on the mission field, is a mile wide and an eighth of an inch deep. Millions have prayed a prayer, but far fewer have been genuinely transformed into disciples of Jesus Christ. If we mean business about fulfilling the Great Commission, then we need to stand without apology for a transforming gospel that calls people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot dodge the fact that the gospel calls people to turn from sin to the Savior, that it calls them to turn from their idols to the one true and living God, that it calls them to turn from dead works to Christ's righteousness as revealed in Jesus Christ. Christ commanded us to make disciples who would follow him in baptism and then obey all that he commanded, so our missionary efforts must settle for nothing less than this. Well, now I realize that a whole lot more needs to be said, could be said, about the essence of fulfilling Christ's commission and disciple-making. But what I'd like to do is offer a brief survey of what I believe are significant implications of the Great Commission for our thinking about missions and missionaries. And let me, let me just state what I believe flowing out of what we've seen here in Matthew 28, what I believe is the great implication of the Great Commission. And that is this. The great implication is that the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled biblically without the planting of churches. Let me say it again. 
the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled biblically without the planting of churches. I believe that that is the principle that sets the standard of evaluation for all missionary work. We must win people to Christ. But the Great Commission starts there. It doesn't stop there. The target at which we aim is the establishment of local assemblies of Christian believers who are committed to the word of God and have biblically qualified elders governing over them. The true target of the Great Commission is churches planted, not converts won. What we often fail to do as it relates to missionary strategy is to study carefully the book of Acts. I call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We fail to extract the missionary strategy found in the book of Acts. You see, what happens is in the Gospels, in the four Gospels, Christ gives us the commission. We've seen Matthew's version, but it's also repeated in Mark, Luke, and John. It's repeated again in Acts 1.8. So there he gives us the command. But in order to find out how the disciples actually obeyed this command, to actually study their strategy for obeying this command, we have to study the book of Acts. And we're going to do that. In the re- no, we're, we're not going to do that in the rest of our time. When we carefully study the missionary journeys of the apostles and their associates in the book of Acts, a very clear biblical missionary strategy is seen. And what we see in the book of Acts is that there were three essential Holy Spirit-directed elements in the missionary strategy of the New Testament church. I just want to mention them to you in summary form. Here's what we see. Here's what we see in the book of Acts. First of all, God chose faithful men and their associates who were faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the first element we need to see. God's method for fulfilling the Great Commission is man. It is not technology, as wonderful as that is. It is not a satellite that can somehow proclaim the gospel to all the world in their own language at one time. God's method is man. And you see that right through the book of Acts. Secondly, as we look at the book of Acts, these men traveled everywhere. They traveled from Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. And what did they do? They preached the word of God. When you read the book of Acts, here are the kinds of statements that you read over and over again. It says they proclaimed the word of God. They taught the word of God. They preached the word of God. They spread the word of God so that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed, Acts 19.20 tells us. So they had the right message, but they also had the right God-ordained method for delivering that message, and that was through their teaching and their preaching. They had the divine message. They had the right way of delivering that message. So God's strategy for actually fulfilling the Great Commission involves gifted and called men who go everywhere preaching the right message, using the right method, that is, teaching and preaching the Word of God. Thirdly, what we see in the book of Acts is is that in those areas where the Word of God was believed and received, local churches sprung up over which godly pastors and elders were appointed in order to shepherd and govern and teach and discipline and and, and make disciples. So here we see another element of God's strategy fulfilling the Great Commission, and that is establishing biblical churches. God's method is man. 
God's method is man using his word and teaching and preaching it to all the nations. And when there is fruit from that, then God's method is establishing local churches. Now, let me ask you again, what are the implications of this? What are the implications of what we've just seen? Let me suggest three. First of all, New Testament missions must aim to plant new churches. New Testament missions must aim to plant new churches. In recent decades, our American pragmatism and impatience sends us rushing forward to win as many converts as we can, as fast as we can, and then we move on. We want instant success rather than long-term accomplishment of the Great Commission. But we've already seen how Christ's commission actually works itself out in the book of Acts. Local churches spring into being as God saves sinners. So New Testament missions must aim to plant new churches. Number two, New Testament missions must aim to plant new indigenous churches. New indigenous churches. That word indigenous not only has the idea of planting church in each in the culture of each people that we, where we preach the gospel, but essentially missionaries have used it over the past number of centuries to refer to three aspects of, of a church. It is an indigenous church. What does that mean? That simply means, in first place, it is self-governing. It has its own trained national leadership that govern and oversee the work of the church without any outside influence from other, other elements. Number two, it is self-supporting. It is a church that is completely financially self-supporting. There may have been financial help in the beginning to, to launch that little church, but eventually the saints from that body, they financially sustain and support the work of that of that little church all of their own. And thirdly, an indigenous church is self-propagating. That is, the members of that church know how to evangelize. They know how to make disciples. And so they're just going out and they're constantly growing. That's an indigenous church. This great commission calls for us to plant new churches. It calls for us to plant new indigenous churches. But number three... The New Testament missions must aim to plant new indigenous reproducing churches. Reproducing churches. Did you ever notice what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.8? He said of that church, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth where? Everywhere. In fact, he says there's no longer any need for me to come. The the gospel has just sounded forth from you. The New Testament church is not only an indigenous church, but it is a reproducing church. Wish I had time to tell you the many stories of the churches in Mexico that are now reproducing other churches. The Nessa church alone is involved now with four other missions. And that's true of all of our churches in Mexico. They're reproducing churches. And when they reproduce a church, they train that church to reproduce other churches. I believe that it is legitimate to speak of the true missionary target, not just as church planting, but also as the establishment of a self-perpetuating church plant movement. Now, finally, 
Let me ask you one more question. What are the implications of this then? The implications of this then is theological training. Theological training. The reality is the target of missions today can't only be the establishment of new indigenous reproducing churches, but it must also involve the equipping of national pastors, church leaders, and professors. And that's precisely what missions has not done the last century. That's precisely why many evangelical Protestant churches around the world are floundering in secretism and all kinds of heresy because disciples have not been made by trained and equipped national pastors and leaders. In Titus 1 verses 5 through 9, Paul wrote to Titus about the importance of ensuring that doctrinally instructed godly leaders be in place in all of the churches. National believers and their leaders must be taught sound doctrine based on the whole counsel of the Word of God. They're to be taught how to live godly lives, how to avoid error, how to survive the onslaughts of spiritual warfare, and how to make disciples. David Seals writes again, and I quote from the same book, he says, Centuries of animism and world religions have saturated the worldviews and cultures of people groups and blinded them to a biblical understanding of life. Many new believers try to understand God and what Christ has done for them against the backdrop of their former beliefs, resulting in syncretism and heresy, end quote. That's true of Mexico. Gabriel and I received a call one day from another state, Mexico, a couple there that have been attending an evangelical church. If I named the denomination, you would recognize it. And when we finally met with them, they said, Brother, we have a problem. The elders and their wives in our church, they come to church on Sunday, they teach, they preach, they lead in prayer. They conduct the Lord's service, but the Lord's Supper. But during the week, if one of them gets sick, they go to the local witch doctor and seek his counsel. Folks, this is common throughout the southern church. In order to avoid theological error and syncretism, believers with the Bible in their language must be taught how to correctly interpret God's Word, the Bible. They must be taught the literal, historical, grammatical, contextual method for understanding the original intent of the biblical author as being the most faithful method of interpreting the Bible. National pastors must have a basic understanding of the message of the Bible, of the structure of the Bible, how it was written, who the human authors were, the backgrounds of each book of the Bible, themes that run throughout the Bible. They must understand all of this. Why? Because God has revealed Himself where? In His Word. It is the Word of God that saves It is the Word of God that sanctifies. It is all about the Word of God. That's not just true in our culture. It's true in every other culture in the world. It is the Word of God that has to be taught and preached. Would it surprise you that most missionaries going to the nations of the world today are not going with the purpose of teaching and preaching accurately the Word of God? They're going for other causes and for other Reasons And so we need to renew our commitment to the Great Commission. Don't fall prey to the idea that the Great Commission means evangelism alone. But understand that it means making disciples for Jesus Christ. We need to 
commit ourselves to long-term discipleship in the mission fields of the world that results in an indigenous and self-perpetuating church movement. And thirdly, we must recommit ourselves to the preaching and training and teaching of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in order to train national pastors and leaders to be equipped in the Word of God. Let me ask you to stand as we close our service in prayer. Father, we thank you for your clear instruction that you have left us with in your word as it relates to your command to go to all of the nations of the earth and to make disciples for Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us, first of all, an understanding of this command. And then, oh, Lord, give us the grace and the wisdom to be obedient to it. Lord, I pray, even as Christ instructed us too, that you would thrust forth more labors into your harvest field. Labors that are equipped and mature in your word. Labors that are equipped to understand what the Great Commission means. Labors that are willing to sacrifice their lives, their families, for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations of the world. Father, May you continue to be glorified as you so show mercy to sinners both here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.